answering the difficult and critical questions youth may face that relate to Mormon culture and teachings. This is the Rise Up Podcast, produced by Fair Mormon. Some of the greatest questions that we have in life don't arise from an unknown piece of information, rather the choices that we make in the direction of our lives. There is one choice that's so fundamental that it requires both earnest study and a lifetime of reappraisal and recommitment to that choice. I speak of the choice of discipleship. A disciple is a title given to followers of Jesus Christ. President James E. Faust defined discipleship in this way in the October 2006 General Conference. The word for disciple and the word for discipline both come from the same Latin root, discipulus, which means pupil. It emphasizes practice or exercise. Self-discipline and self-control are consistent and permanent characteristics of the followers of Jesus as exemplified by Peter, James, and John, who indeed forsook all and followed him. The disciples of Christ receive a call not only to forsake forsake the pursuit of worldly things, but to carry the cross daily. To carry the cross means to follow his commandments and build up his church on the earth. It also means self-mastery. In Doctrine and Covenants section 41, verse 5, God defines further what he considers to be a disciple. Quote, He that receiveth my law and doeth it, the same is my disciple. And he that saith he receiveth it and doeth it not, the same is not my disciple, and shall be cast out from among you. In other scriptures are additional ways to describe the acts and therefore the character of a disciple. Sometimes this is further emphasized by stating behaviors that distinguish an individual as lacking the characteristics of a disciple. In Doctrine and Covenants section 45, verse 32, it addresses the disciple's choice to be steadfast and to be found doing the right things in the right place at the right time. Quote, But my disciples shall stand in holy places and shall not be moved, but among the wicked men shall lift up their voices and curse God and die, end quote. DNC 5240 addresses the need to love and care for our neighbors, quote, and remember in all things the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted, for he that doeth not these things, the same is not my disciple, end quote. Doctrine and Covenants section 103, verses 27 and 28, speaks to the level of commitment that a disciple must have to the commandments and the principles of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Quote, Let no man be afraid to lay down his life for my sake, for whoso layeth down his life for my sake shall find it again. And whoso is not willing to lay down his life for my sake is not my disciple. End quote. President James E. Faust also taught in that same October 2006 General Conference talk the following. What is discipleship? It is primarily obedience to the Savior. Discipleship includes many things. It is chastity. It is tithing. It is family home evening. It is keeping all the commandments. It is forsaking anything that is not good for us. Everything in life 
as a price. Considering the Savior's great promise for peace in this life and eternal life in the life to come, discipleship is a price worth paying. It is a price we cannot afford not to pay. By measure, the requirements of discipleship are much, much less than the promised blessings. As stated before, the choice of discipleship is a two-part choice. First, one must study and come to know the life of a disciple. The second is to remain true to that commitment and to that lifestyle unceasingly. The best source for studying the life of a disciple is to study the life of Jesus Christ. He is the example of who a disciple can and should become, and it is in his teachings that we learn how to act as he would act. A disciple must choose to follow the Savior's example and his teachings. When a person is baptized into the church, this acts as a formal declaration of discipleship. Elder Daniel L. Johnson of the Seventy said in this October 2012 General Conference address, Those of us who have entered into the waters of baptism and received the gift of the Holy Ghost have covenanted that we are willing to take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. Or, in other words, we declare ourselves to be disciples of the Lord. We renew that covenant each week as we partake of the sacrament, and we demonstrate that discipleship by the way that we live. Those who have been baptized have made the choice of discipleship, but we've also promised to always keep true to that commitment. This choice does not come with an exit strategy, vacation days, or an expiration date. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf said this in the April 2014 General Conference. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not an effort of once a week or once a day. It is an effort of once and for all. When placed up against physical or spiritual trials, maybe even those where we question our faith or waver in our commitments due to feeling a sense of being overwhelmed, the choice to continue in discipleship can seem especially difficult. When a person comes across a troubling piece of history or social pressures to accept a lifestyle or practice that is contrary to gospel standards, one may begin to question that choice of discipleship. Other times we observe challenges in our life that are more situational, such as a loss of a job, the death of a loved one, or pressing issues like experiencing same-sex attraction, gender confusion, or mental health issues like depression or anxiety, and wonder if God is real, or even ask, for what evil am I being punished? Another question that's commonly asked is, why should I be so committed to something that's hard to understand or seems to conflict with what I now know? I too have had moments where I question my commitments in light of certain trials of faith or due to the choices others have made that have had an adverse impact on my dedication. In those times, I try to remind myself that I'm not alone in these feelings. Even the Savior's chosen apostles in the old world often called disciples in the scriptures, had periods of wavering commitment. Jeffrey R. Holland gave a powerful lesson in the October 2012 General Conference entitled The First Great Commandment. 
I encourage a weekly study of that talk as part of our sacrament preparation. But in that talk, Elder Holland recounts the story of Peter and the other disciples being called, ministering for three years with the Savior, and then going back to fishing, back to their previous life after the Savior had died and been resurrected. I offer this story because within its text is the key to self-appraising our level of commitment. But also there are the methods and the, the way to increase our desire to reignite that commitment time and time again. There is almost no group in history for whom I have more sympathy than I have for the eleven remaining apostles immediately following the death of the Savior of the world. I think we sometimes forget just how inexperienced they still were and how totally dependent upon Jesus they had of necessity been. Of them he had said, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me? But of course, to them, he hadn't been with them nearly long enough. Three years isn't long to call an entire quorum of twelve apostles from a handful of new converts, purge from them the error of old ways, teach them the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then leave them to carry on the work until they too were killed. Quite a staggering prospect for a group of newly ordained elders, especially the part about being left alone. Repeatedly, Jesus had tried to tell them he was not going to remain physically present with them, but they either could not or would not comprehend such a wrenching thought. Mark writes, He taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not the saying and were afraid to ask him. Then, after such a short time to learn and even less time to prepare, the unthinkable happened. The unbelievable was true. Their Lord and Master, their Counselor and King, was crucified. His mortal ministry was over. And the struggling little church he had established seemed doomed to scorn and destined for extinction. His apostles did witness him in his resurrected state, but that only added to their bewilderment, as they surely must have wondered, what do we do now? They turned for an answer to Peter, the senior apostle. Here I ask your indulgence as I take some non-scriptural liberty in my portrayal of this exchange. In effect, Peter said to his associates, Brethren, it's been a glorious three years. None of us could have imagined such a few short months ago 
that the miracles we've seen and the divinity we have enjoyed, we've talked with, we've prayed with, we've labored with the very Son of God himself. We have walked with him and wept with him. And on that night of the horrible ending, no one wept more bitterly than I. But that's over. He's finished his work and he's risen from the tomb. He's worked out his salvation and ours. So, you ask, what do we do now? I don't know more to tell you than to return to your former life rejoicing. I intend to go a-fishing. And at least six of the ten other remaining apostles said in agreement, we also go with thee. John, who was one of them, writes, they went forth and entered into a ship immediately. But alas, the fishing wasn't very good. Their first night back on the lake, they caught nothing, not a single fish. With the first rays of dawn, they disappointedly turned toward the shore and saw in the distance a figure who called out to them, Children, have you caught anything? Glumly, these apostles turned again fishermen gave the answer no fisherman wants to give. (laughs) We have caught nothing, they muttered. And to add insult to injury, they were being called children. (laughs) Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find, the stranger calls out. And with those simple words recognition begins to flood over them. Just three years earlier, these very men had been fishing on this very sea. On that occasion, too, they had toiled all the night and had taken nothing, the Scripture says. But a fellow Galilean on the shore that day had called out to them, to let down their nets. And they drew a great multitude of fishes, enough that their nets broke, the catch filling two boats so heavily they had begun to sink. Now it was happening again. These children, as they were rightly called, eagerly lowered their net. And they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. John said the obvious. It is the Lord. And over the edge of the boat, the irrepressible Peter leaped. After a joyful reunion with the resurrected Jesus, Peter had an exchange with the Savior that I consider the crucial turning point of the apostolic ministry generally and certainly for Peter personally. Moving this great rock of a man 
to a majestic life of devoted service and leadership. Looking at their battered little boats, their frayed nets, and a stunning pile of 153 fish, they counted them, Jesus said to his senior apostle, Peter, do you love me more than you love all this? Peter said, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. The Savior responds to that reply, but continues to look into the eyes of his disciple and says again, Peter, do you love me? Undoubtedly confused a bit by the repetition of the question, the great fisherman answers a second time. Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. The Savior again gives a brief response, but with relentless scrutiny, he asks for the third time Peter, do you love me? And by now, Peter surely must be feeling uncomfortable. Perhaps there is in his heart the memory of only a few days earlier when he had been asked another question three times and he had answered equally emphatically but in the negative. Or perhaps he began to wonder if he misunderstood the master teacher's question. Or perhaps he was searching his heart seeking honest confirmation of the answer he had given so readily, almost automatically. Whatever his feelings, Peter said for the third time, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. To which Jesus responded, and here again I acknowledge my non-scriptural elaboration. Jesus responded perhaps saying something like, Then Peter, why are you here? Why are we back on this same shore by these same nets having this same conversation. Wasn't it obvious then, and isn't it obvious now, that if I want fish, I can get fish? (laughs) What I need, Peter, are disciples. And I need them forever. I need someone to feed my sheep 
and save my lambs. I need someone to preach my gospel and defend my faith. I need someone who loves me, truly, truly loves me, and loves what our Father in heaven has commissioned me to do. Ours is not a feeble message. It is not a fleeting task. It is not hapless. It is not hopeless. It is not to be consigned to the ash heap of history. It is the work of Almighty God, and it is to change the world. So, Peter, for the second and presumably the last time, I am asking you to leave all this and to go and teach and testify. You labor and serve loyally until the day in which they will do to you exactly what they did to me. And then turning to all the apostles, he might well have said something like, Were you as foolhardy as the scribes and the Pharisees, as, as Herod and Pilate were? Did you, like they, think that this work could be killed simply by killing me? Did, did you, like they, think the cross and the nails and the tomb were the end of it all? And each could blissfully go back to being whatever you were before? Children, did not my life and my love touch your hearts more deeply than this? My beloved brothers and sisters, I'm not certain just what our experience will be on Judgment Day. But I will be very surprised if at some point in that conversation God does not ask us exactly what Christ asked Peter. Did you love me? I think he will want to know if in our very mortal, very inadequate and sometimes childish grasp of things, did we at least understand one commandment? The first and greatest commandment of them all. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind. And if at such a moment we can stammer out, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee, then he may remind us that the crowning characteristic of love is always loyalty. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. So we have neighbors to bless, children to protect, the poor to lift up, and the truth to defend. We have wrongs to make right, 
truths to share and good to do. In short, we have a life of devoted discipleship to give in demonstrating our love of the Lord. We can't quit and we can't go back. If you want answers to question about historical events, if you want answers on who to marry, if you want answers on whether or not to go or even stay on a mission, remembering and recommitting to your choice of discipleship will put you back in a mindset to feel and recognize the Spirit. It is that Spirit that will guide you into truth and will guide you to an exalted life. If we can answer that now famous question, do you love me? With a, yes, I do love thee, Lord. We can feel of his love, we can be open to the promptings of the Spirit, and we can find answers to difficult questions we may face. In essence, we can feel peace. I have felt that peace in my own life, and I can testify that this is true. I do love the Lord, And that choice to love the Lord is the choice of discipleship. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rise Up. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes under the name Mormon Faircast. Questions or comments can be posted at blog.fairmormon.org in conjunction with this episode. Tune in each week for another episode of Rise Up. Thank you for listening. <laughs>